you'll join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for your living word, Jesus Christ. And help us, Lord, because we all must answer this question. Are you enough? In Jesus' name, amen. Diane and I finished reading a book that was a Christmas present from Nathan Abrana, The Insanity of God. So I'm going to share some of those stories with you. But the first thing about following Jesus, and I'm going to be reading a little bit more. Uh, you can find it in, I think it's on page 1424 and 1425 in the Pew Bibles, where it will be in the book of Mark. But as we think about following Jesus, I want you to imagine it's 1950, and we're in Russia, and churches are being closed. Robert's already been arrested. I was actually going to try to get some of my old police officer friends to come in and arrest him this morning, but it was too cold. Robert's already been arrested. Sarah and her family, the guards throw a suitcase and say, you've got one hour to pack you and your family, and we're leaving, and we're taking you, and she doesn't know where she's going. And that actually happened. The pastor was taken to a prison. The family was taken to this rural cabin, not much of a house at all, in a very cold part of Russia. You think it's cold here. Check out Siberia sometime. And then one night, a deacon of a local church, because this is out in the rural area, they still have a few churches, is woke up by God. And he says, hitch up your horse, take the extra food that you and the church people have been gathering together, and go out to that, that cabin where the pastor's family is, because they need it. And right before this, the mother had been praying. Well, the child came to them, and they just had eaten their last crust of bread. And the child says to the mother, does dad even know where we're at? And the mom says, God knows where we're at. So this deacon gets woke up in the middle of the night and told to hitch up his horse, and he argues with God. He says, wait a minute, God. You don't understand. There's wolves everywhere out here. It's way below zero. And if I go out, my horse is going to either be attacked by wolves, frozen to death, or eaten, and then they're going to eat me. And God, I'll never make it back. And God said, you just have to go. You don't have to make it back. That was the message that this deacon got. And so he obeyed. He didn't have any happy ending. He did make it back. But he loaded up the food stuff and took it out to this cabin, knocks on the door in the middle of the night, this 18-mile horse trip, and delivers the food. That family had to make a decision. And when you talk about following Jesus, that's really the first decision you have to make. Is Jesus enough? So we're going to start in Mark chapter 14 if you want to follow along. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, 
he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and followed him. When they had gone a little bit further, they saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them. They left their father, Zebedee, and the boat and the hired men and followed him. Following Jesus is not always easy. In another book that I'm reading, Henry Nouwen talks about this particular passage, and he explains this. As we're thinking about the disciples, and you know, they left their boat, they left their net. We think, yeah, okay. But this is how Henry Nouwen puts it. But the disciples of Jesus left their nets, the source of their economic security, and their families, the source of their emotional security. And they followed one who promised to fulfill the deepest desires of their heart. We know what the uncertainty feels like. And yet, as we let go, we sense that something new, something wonderful can happen. So there's that excitement in following Jesus. But it's definitely not necessarily an easy thing. In John chapter 21, there's an interesting story. This is the last chapter of John. And all of you have read in Matthew, Mark, and Luke the story of Peter after Jesus is arrested and he follows Jesus into the various places, the courtyard of the high priest. And he's confronted and he denies Jesus three different times. Well, in John chapter 21, Jesus goes through, and this starts at verse 15, this series of questions with Peter. And each time he looks at Peter and says to him, do you love me? And then he tells him, feed my sheep. And Peter answers, yes, I love you. But Jesus doesn't stop. He says it to him again. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me more than these? And he tells him to take care of his sheep. And then a third time Jesus says to him, do you love me? And Peter, it's recorded, is grieved at this. He's wounded. He says, God, you know everything. You know that I love you. And then Jesus goes on to say something rather strange. He says, when you were young, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted to go. But now that you're old, when you get old, excuse me, someone else is going to dress you. And they're going to take you where you don't want to go. Many experts, people a lot smarter than me, think this is a prophecy of his, Peter's death by martyrdom, by crucifixion. Whether that's accurate or not, Jesus was telling him, following him was not necessarily going to be easy. John even says that Jesus said this to show a kind of death by which Peter would what? Glorify God. But the key was, follow me. And then Peter does what most of us do. We look around. And he notices that John, that youngster, has been following him, listening to all this. So he says to Jesus, well, what about him? And Jesus answers, well, what's that to you? Follow me. If I want him to remain until I come again, what difference does that make? And Jesus calls us to a journey. 
And it may not be an easy journey. But the time has come. That's verse 15 of Mark chapter 1. Jesus says, the kingdom of God is now. Repent and believe the good news. Again, that seems kind of strange being interjected right in this passage about him calling people to follow him. But again, Henry Nouwen in his book talks a little bit about that. Talks about the fullness of time. He writes, the Bible is concerned with time and the time, it's for the when an event is supposed to happen. It's not just talking about chronological things. And this is how he phrases it. Using the Greek word, time has to be converted from just chronological time into a karios, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. A New Testament Greek word that has to do with opportunity, with moments that seem ripe for their intended purpose. So Jesus is telling him the time is now. The time is now for what? To follow him, to become fishers of men. So then we start looking about, well, what about this kingdom? If we're following him, we're following him into this kingdom. Again, the interpreter's Bible tries to explain that a little bit because it talks about the kingdom of God is basically what we think. That's where God's reigning. That's where he's sovereign. But then the question is, is he sovereign over our mind, our heart, our will in this world? That's where repentance needs. And Robert talked about repentance last week. So I'm not going to spend much time on that. That's making that decision to turn and go in a different direction. Repent and believe the good news. The good news is what? The good news is there's a new order. And it's at hand. The time is now. But you need a new mind so you fit in with this new order. We can't do it the old way. Matthew 22, 37, excuse me, 27. No, it's 37. 37 through 40 talks about that. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. And then it talks about the second command. It's just as important. To love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on those things. So that's all part of this kingdom. But Jesus in Luke tells us, this is in chapter 17, verses 20 through 21, that we don't look for the kingdom over here. We don't look for it over there. We don't look for it in the future. It's within you. He's talking about the kingdom within you. He's talking about, are you going to follow Jesus? Is Jesus enough to have him become king in you? The author of Romans again points that out. Romans 14, 17 says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of just eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So how do we do that? Nip Gripkin, the author of The Insanity of God, points out many sacrifices of true stories of people he went to interview. A little bit of the backstories. He worked as an aid relief worker in Somalia during the Civil War for six years. And actually the name that he wrote the book on isn't his real name because he doesn't want to jeopardize any of the people that he's writing about to alert the authorities who they are and where they are. And so he knows something about sacrifice. He shares in the book about one of the exciting times in Somalia 
because there's only a handful of believers there because the Christians are targeted by the Islam. People on both sides of this civil war to be killed because they're considered to be heretics, traitors to the country. But he had this opportunity for these four Somalian believers to meet him at this secret location and they shared communion together and how meaningful and exciting that was. Only to learn two weeks later that those four people had been found, hunted down, and murdered because they were Christians. And if you were Somalian, you were not going to be a Christian for very long. So in trying to deal with that, he went on a trip, basically, to start interviewing people that had lived through persecution. And then he wrote some of their stories down in a book. And the one story that I'm going to share with you is about a person called Dimitri. And again, I'm probably mispronouncing his name. But he grew up in a Christian family. But the communists were now in power. Again, we're back in the 50s. And one of their goals was to close all the churches. They left a few open. And there was a church that was a three-day journey from where he lived. But they couldn't go there very often. It took three days to walk there. And so he decided, he talked to his wife and said, you know, just with our family, I want to start telling some of the Bible stories that I heard growing up. Do you think that'd be okay? So he did. He started telling the stories that he remembered as a child about different events that happened in the Bible. And then his son said, well, what about some of those hymns you talked about? Could we start singing some of those? And so they did. Of course, they live in this small village, neighbors here, and they start getting interested. So soon he has 25 people every week coming to his house for this sharing of the what he remembers about the Bible and reading from the Bible and singing some hymns. And so the communist party leader of that community came and told him and warned him and said, you've started an illegal church and we're warning you that this has to stop or bad things are going to happen to you. I'm going to read you Demetrius' response because it's kind of comical when you think about what a church really is. This is how he responded to the communist official. How can you say that, he argued. I have no religious training. I'm not a pastor. This is not a church building. We're just a group of family and friends getting together. All we're doing is reading and talking about the Bible, singing and praying, and sometimes sharing what money we have to help out a poor neighbor. How can you call that a church? And that was his perspective. But the communist official was pretty astute. He said, I don't care what you call it. It looks like a church to us. This has got to stop or bad things are going to happen. So they started. He lost his job. His wife lost her job. The children were expelled from school, and he describes as little things like that. But they kept meeting, and it kept growing. It grew to 75 people. The communists brought the army with them this time when they came, and they wanted to send a message. They gabbed Demetria, the Communist Party official, and started slapping him across the face, and then threw him up against the wall and told him, we've warned you, and warned you, we've warned you. This has to stop. And as the army officers and the Communist Party leader are leaving the church, an elderly lady steps out from the pew, and she points her finger right at that Communist Party official, taking her life in her hand. She says, you've harmed a man of God. You shall not live. Two days later, this Communist Party official dies of a heart attack. The village is stunned. 
the fear of God has hit this village. The next Sunday, 150 people are crowded in and around this house. And they can't have that. So he's arrested. And he's taken away to prison. And in prison, he's in solitary. He's in prison with 1,500 hardened criminals. And every morning, and he spends 17 years in prison. So when you talk about suffering, having a hard life, think of Demetrius. He spent 17 years in prison. Every morning he got up and would sing a heart praise song to the Lord. And the other prisoners would yell at him. They would throw things. They would bang their cups. They didn't want to be hearing this music at daybreak. And every time he would find a scrap of paper, he would take it and write down every Bible verse he could, real small writing, and put it on that piece of paper. And in his cell there was this pillar where it leaked and water would stick to it or in the cold time it would be frozen. And he would stick that paper up there as an offering to God. And of course the guards would see it. They would take it down and they would beat him for doing that. Finally the guards did get to him at the close of the 17 years. They told him his family was gone. That everything he knew and loved was gone. And that got to him. He sat on his bunk that night in despair. He actually told him all right, I'll sign that confession you've been wanting me to sign. I need to get out of here and find my family. And as he sat on his bed, and again, this is what he records, he was in despair that he gave up. But at that same time, 600 miles away, his family, his wife, his children, and his brother sensed through the Holy Spirit that Demetrius was in deep despair. So they gathered in prayer. All his loved ones were gathered in a circle, kneeling and praying in his home. And they began to pray out loud for him. And then miraculously, he could hear them praying for him, 600 miles away in his prison cell. So the next morning when the guards brought in that confession, of course he stood straight and said, you lied to me. God let me hear my family. I'm signing nothing. They were infuriated. They didn't know what to do. That day he finds a big piece of paper, a full sheet of paper, and he writes on both sides everything that he can remember about Bible verses and things. And he, again, he posts that to the pillar. The guard sees it, tears it down, grabs him, rips him up and says, we've had enough. They drag him out of his cell and say, we're going to execute you. Enough is enough. And as they're dragging him out into the courtyard, 1,500 hardened criminal prisoners who've listened to this guy sing every morning for 17 years start singing the praise song that they've heard him sing and raising their hands. He describes that as a choir. And the guards were just taken aback. They didn't know what to do. They just were dumbfounded and said, who are you? He said, I'm the son of the living God, and his name is Jesus Christ. See, Demetria had decided following Jesus was worth it, and following Jesus was enough. Because following Jesus may not be easy. But that's the first question we have to ask ourselves. If you're going to follow Jesus, great. But ask yourself, 
if everything is taken from you but Jesus, will you still follow Jesus? Again, Nick Ripken writes this. You know, if our goal is just to reduce persecution, that task is real easy. Just keep Jesus to yourself. Don't share him. He goes on to tell you that, you know, we're just as free to share Christ any place in the world, in any corner of the world, and in the, any of the most dangerous places of the world as we are right here in the United States. Now, he does acknowledge that the cost for sharing might be quite different for you and I sharing, for someone in Somalia sharing, where they'll probably be executed on the spot. But the question that enables us to share, is Jesus worth it? Come, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. But first, you have to ask yourself the questions. If all there is is Jesus, is Jesus enough? You have to answer that yes, if you're really going to follow Jesus. If you join me in prayer. Father, we thank you that you are enough. Through the Holy Spirit, embolden us so that we can answer that question always. Yes, Jesus, if all we have is you, you are enough, and we will follow. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to do one more song to really focus on that. You can sit, you can stand. This is really just a time to open your heart and surrender on letting Jesus be enough. The first time I heard this song, Wig Maker, was actually at a funeral. And it really became my song after that just because the power in that family with losing a loved one really young and still being able to say, Waymaker, Miracle Worker, Promise Keeper, Light in the Darkness, was just, I want to do that too.
Yeah. Uh-huh. 